Isaiah chapter 50. If you have a Bible, please turn to Isaiah chapter 50. And I've entitled this message, The Servant's Path to Glory. The Servant's Path to Glory. As we've seen in the previous weeks, as we've sort of dove into this book, in the middle of the book, uh, we've seen that Yahweh has been pronouncing judgment and discipline upon His people because of their idolatry, because of their rebellion, because they are a stiff-necked, hard-of-heart people. And we see that they have followed the, the pagans, the world around them, in regards to worship, in regards to their immorality. They are worshiping false gods, and they are living like the world. And God is recognizing that His people are compromised. And he is bringing his just discipline against his covenant people. And in all of this turmoil, there is the promise of a redeemer. That God is willing and able and will restore a remnant to himself, a people that he has preserved, that he will send his servant to undo all that has been done by Adam and every sinner from his day. So we see hope that even in the midst of worldliness, and compromise, his servant will overcome, and those who hope in him will not be put to shame. And so we pick up today in Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 4. Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 4, and this is the word of God. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle the fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. Father, we come now for help. We have nothing without you, and this is a fool's errand without the power of your spirit. So I ask that you would move today in this place. I ask for a work of God to take place even now for the power of your spirit, the unction of the Holy Spirit, that you would come down, that this feeble sinner would decrease, that you would be increase, that your word would be exalted, that your servant would be glorified, 
that your church would be challenged to serve the Lord with zeal and gladness. So use me, use your word, have your way in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I never said it would be easy. I only said it would be worth it. Uh, that's a quote that's attributed to a, an actress back from the 20th century. Um, and while it's not scripture, I think there is much application there uh, to the life of a Christian. I think you might agree that at times being a believer is challenging. It's not easy to be a faithful Christian. It may be easy to be a compromised, worldly Christian, but it is not easy to be a faithful Christian, to be in the world but not of the world. As you well know, being a faithful believer often causes strife within families. Families are divided because of the Word of God and the power of the Gospel. Being a Christian comes with the daily battles of the desires of our flesh. There is a an old man in us that wants us to live in a way that does not please God. Being a Christian means that we live in a world that is hostile to the things that we hold dear. The path to glory is not easy. But that is because our Lord's path to glory was not easy. It came through hardship and toil and suffering. He was hated and mocked and ridiculed and ultimately he gave his life as a sacrifice. But he was faithful to the end. Our hero, our forerunner, our covenant head suffered in our stead, in our place. And as we'll see today, Lord willing, he strengthens his church to do the same. The path to glory is hard, but it is oh so worth it. And so as we dive back into this text and we Behold again the servant of Yahweh as we as this sort of picture of his life, of his ministry, of his preparation is unraveling before us. We see today initially the, his wise tongue, his wise tongue. And look back with me in verse four. He says there now here at this point, the servant is the speaker. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught or your translation might say the tongue of a disciple that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. That I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. So in each of these songs, in each of these sections of scripture, we have seen attention on the servant's ministry of the word. And we have learned that this servant will be a prophet. He is one that will come to speak for God, he will have revelation in his mouth and he will declare the things of God, but he will be unlike any other prophet because he will be God in the flesh, speaking the word of God himself, not looking to another man or another source, but he will speak God's words. We saw in the first song that this servant will faithfully bring forth justice and the coastlands, the ends of the earth will wait for his law. That is, the Gentiles will wait for the written and preached revelation of Yahweh, of God, the God of the Hebrews. And we read that he will open blind eyes and release prisoners. And we saw that that is a, that is a, a metaphor, if you will, for the, 
the conversion of sinners. Right? Blind eyes are open. They see then the glory of God. They see their sin, their need to repent. Prisoners that are released are set free from the bondage of idolatry and the oppression of sin. And he will do that with his tongue through preaching as they wait for his law. It will be his word that will be the agent of conversion. And we saw last week that he will be made as a light for the nations, for the Gentiles, that God's salvation would reach to the end of the earth. And, and how is it that he will be a light to the nations? How is it that his gospel will reach to the end of the earth? It is because his mouth has been made like a sharp sword. And so it is through his preaching, his ministry of revelation, that light will come to the nations. All that to say this servant is a preacher and he will preach the word of God. And he has a tongue, he says, of one taught or a tongue of a disciple. That is, he does not come to speak on his own. Right? We hear Jesus over and over saying, I, I speak the words that my father has given me. I've come not to do my own will, but to do the will of my father. He says he has a tongue of a disciple. Jesus speaks on behalf of the Godhead, on behalf of his father. And beloved, let's not forget that he comes with good news. He comes with good news. And you and I have good news to share. Regardless of how it's received, regardless of what the world thinks about the gospel, we have the greatest news that anyone could ever hear that they desperately need. And we saw in Isaiah 40, this, this book, if you will, the second half of Isaiah began with the words, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And we hear now that this preacher who has a tongue as one taught or as a disciple is able to sustain with a word those that are weary. He is able to sustain with the word those that are weary. And that, that word sustain, I think, is interesting. It means to uphold or to support or to keep from falling. Now, he doesn't say here that he will deliver with the word those that are weary, but he will sustain them in their trials, sustain them, uphold them in their calamity, keep them from falling, not always delivering from the trial, but sustaining them through the hardship. And I think we have to acknowledge certainly that in this passage, God's people are weary. They may not admit it or acknowledge it, but they're weary because of their sin and idolatry. Now, we all well know that when we turn away from the living God, that we turn to the flesh and to our sin, it always leads to death and destruction and chaos. It always brings pain. The broad road is the road that leads to destruction. They are weary because their enemies are against them, and their enemies are and will prevail. They are weary because those enemies are actually the discipline of their God brought upon them because of their sin and because of their rebellion. So the servant comes to encourage his people that he is able to sustain with a word those that are weary. 
And I would wager today that some of you here today are weary. Maybe you're weary from the demands of your vocation, the demands of work. And as soon as you seem to get ahead for a moment, it all just piles up again. And it seems like you can never get yourself out of the hustle and bustle of the demands of your job. Maybe some of you are here today weary trying to make ends meet, robbing Peter to pay Paul a a, a pot of bills that is this big and a pot of resources to deal with them that is much smaller. Some of you maybe are weary from family issues, difficulties that you have with those that you love. Some are weary with health issues, your own and those of others. Maybe your body is not what it once was and you're dealing with pain and suffering and you are wrestling with the reality that this is the new normal in your life. I'm sure many are weary of cultural and political issues. And when you see the latest headline and think it can't get any worse than that, there is another headline, another story. I think as believers, we need to heed the example of the prophet Jeremiah. Listen to what he says. He says, your words were found and I ate them. And they became, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Beloved, I think some here today need to get back to eating God's words. Now, when you eat something, it's not just a, a smell test. It's not just a, a sampling of a, of a taste test, but eating something is consuming it into your body. And he says, your words were found and I, I ate them. I took them in. And what did they, they do? They became to me a joy, the prophet says, and the delight of my heart. And some here that are weary need to get back to eating the words of this servant. These are words that will remind you of the precious promises of God that are true for you when you're weary. These are words that will encourage you to hope afresh in Christ when you are weary. These are words that will remind you to cast your cares upon Him because He cares for you. In your weariness. So the servant has a wise tongue that is able to sustain the weary. We also see that he has an open ear. An open ear. Verse 4 again. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear. Now, we've been wrestling with some of these challenging texts, and it seems to me that sometimes we don't know what to do with the passages that speak of the humanity of our Lord. We've been discipled well, I think, as evangelicals, that we want to stand upon the truth that Jesus Christ is God. We have cults and and all sorts of people that are happy to say and, and accept anything about Jesus as long as he is not God, a good teacher, a rabbi, uh, uh, whatever it might be. We even have Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and Muslims all 
having Jesus as a central figure in their theology, yet they all deny his absolute divinity. So as we're strong in that area, I think sometimes we don't know what to do with the humanity of our Lord. Now, let's be reminded, beloved, that Jesus is fully man, that he really was a man and is still to this day has a human nature, that he was a real baby born in a real manger. He was really dependent upon his mother to nurse him, to change him. He really had to learn to eat and to walk and to talk. He was not just sitting there waiting for this all to be over when he could grow up and stop acting like a baby, but he was a real human child. You remember the the scene when Jesus is at the temple and his family. Maybe they had a lot of kids. We have to be gracious. They forgot him back at the at the temple. Right. And. They go back and he's confounding the rabbis at 12 years old. He's a young man. And some might read that and say, look, obviously he knows it all. He's 12 and he's schooling these guys. But listen to what Luke says in Luke 2.52. He says, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus, the man, increased in wisdom. He increased in Knowledge. He says of God that he has an ear to hear as those that are taught. And he says, morning by morning here, God awakens me. He awakens my ear to hear. The Lord God has opened my ear. So we learn something of the preparation of Jesus that daily he communed with his father. He was not learned. He was not educated by one of the rabbis of his day. But every morning he says here that his father opened his ear and he had communion with God. And I would add meditated on the scripture because we see that Jesus is thoroughly um, inundated with God's word. When he goes into the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan, what does he use to combat the lies of the enemy? He uses the word of God, right? He uses God's word, the promises of the Lord. And he rebukes Satan with the word. And he says here, the servant does it. He awakens me to listen as a disciple. The father awakens the son every morning to teach him, to minister to him. And he gives him the tongue as a disciple and an ear to hear and to learn. And I I, I think that has to fit in our Christology, our doctrine of Christ that he learned and grew in wisdom as a man. We see one example in Mark chapter 1, that rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed, went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. We see many times in the Gospels that Jesus would leave the crowds and even leave the apostles to go by himself to seek the face of the Father. So, beloved... If our Lord's ear was open to the word of the Father, how much more ought ours to be? If he was humble to be taught by his Father, how much more should we be humble to acknowledge, I don't know everything today. I don't have it all figured out. There has to be some holes in my theology because I am a fallible man. 
If he every day awoke to commune with God and to learn from his words, how much more should we do the same and more? Gentlemen, as you seek to lead your families, as you seek to shepherd your homes, as you seek to open up the Bible to your wives and to your children and to anyone that God has put in your care, we dare not speak for Christ or set out to teach his word if our ear is not open to the Father. If we are not morning by morning sitting at the feet of Jesus as Jesus sat at the feet of his Father. But ladies as well. I want to say praise God, ladies, if you have a husband that opens up God's word with you. I wish we didn't have to praise God for that. I wish it was assumed, but praise God that you do if you do. But I urge you not to allow the only time that you eat to come from the hand of your husband. You know, raising children is, is, is difficult, to say the least. <laughs> and, uh, you know, moms and dads often have different ways of how they want to do things. And, uh, you know, I've always kind of struggled with letting go and letting the kids figure stuff out on their own. You know, when a child is small and they begin to eat for themselves, um, there's, a, there's a period there where it's sort of a disaster, right? You have them in the high chair and you put a bowl of spaghetti and a fork and, and it's on the wall, it's in their hair, it's, they're doing face painting. A little bit of it hopefully gets in their mouth. And my tendency is just to say, let me just feed him. He'll get full, and we don't have to scrub the walls after dinner, right? But Erica is always good to say he has to learn. And this process is never going to happen if we don't go through the, the dirty part. And as Christians, we need to learn to feed ourselves. We, need not, we, we ought not be spoon-fed our entire lives, but we need to open up the Bible. And as Jeremiah says, eat of God's word for ourselves. And if I can exhort you young person, still in the care of your parents, however young you might be, five years old, 15 years old, about to leave the house. I exhort you to begin now to set a concrete pattern of your life to seek God every single day. I think there are few things that will be more beneficial, beneficial in this life than to meet with God on a daily basis in prayer and in his word. I understand that we're all busy. And some of you are saying, listen, pastor, we've recently implemented family worship and that has caused a sacrifice. And now you're saying that we have to on our own also have devotions to God. You would do well. I think we would all do well to have that one-on-one -on -one relationship with Jesus Christ, to, to eat ourselves of his word and to grow in him as we grasp how we study and open up and apply God's word. We're all busy, but is there a more important meeting of the day than that meeting at the feet of Jesus? So we see his wise tongue, we see his open ear, and we see now his obedient suffering, his obedient suffering. Verse five, the Lord God has opened my ear. And I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks 
to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Now, why is he talking about turning backward? Why is he talking about rebelling? Because he's comparing himself with the nation of Israel. He's comparing himself with the failures that God has been condemning, basically, in in this book. And a couple chapters previously, in verse 8 of chapter 48, we read these words. This is speaking to the nation. You have never heard, you have never known, from of old your ear has not been opened. So Yahweh is telling his people there, you are not receptive to my word, to my commandments, to my law. I have forbidden this pagan uh, practice of idolatry and you have disregarded my words. I have forbidden the immorality that you are living in and you have not acknowledged my word. And the servant here of Yahweh says, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious and I turned not backward. Remember, Jesus here is pictured as the true and faithful Israel. He is doing all that Israel failed to do. Paul says that he is the second Adam. In Adam, all die, right? Adam sinned, and as our representative, he plunged humanity into a cursed existence and where we all experience now death and the curse of sin because of Adam's failure. But Jesus, as the second Adam, is the true faithful Son of God, and in Christ all are made alive. All that are in Christ, their curse is being undone. And so Jesus is pictured here as the faithful, true Israel, as the second Adam, and the servant is obedient in his righteous suffering. And I think the text here speaks very clearly of the suffering of our Lord. We'll see this much more vividly next week as we get into Isaiah 52 and 53. But he says, I turned, I gave my back to those who strike. God's son willingly gave his back to a man with a whip and allowed him to annihilate, shred the flesh off of his back so that he could see his bones and his internal organs. They struck him, they slapped him, they mocked him, they spat on him, they disgraced him. He was then hung on a wooden cross, naked. They mocked him, wagged their fingers at him, and they watched him die. But he did not turn back. He did not rebel against the Father. He did not complain and gripe and moan about his calling. But for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. In church, he did so as a righteous sufferer. He did so as an innocent man because he did so in your place. It was my guilt and your guilt. It was my sin and your sin that brought this suffering upon him. It was the will of his father, we read, that he would suffer for the many. It was the will of his father that he would suffer, that many today, millennia later, might know this God. It was the will of his father that he would suffer so that this church and every biblical church across the world would still be here and alive 2,000 years later. It was the will of the father that he would suffer 
that the gospel would continue to go forth until that day that Christ is pleased to return for His bride. We see His obedient suffering. We also see His trust in the Father's strength. Look at verse 7 of Isaiah 50. I love these words. He says them twice. But the Lord God helps me. I think we ought to all uh, take that verse in and apply it uh, to memory. The Lord God helps me. How often do we need to be reminded of those wonderful words? The Lord God helps me. Yahweh the Creator is my strength and is my help. Therefore, he says, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. We see this servant trusting in the might, trusting in the strength of his father. And we see that this servant will be vindicated. He will be vindicated. Christ finds strength in his father's calling for him to suffer because he knows he will be vindicated. His words, his claims, his preaching, his oneness with the father, his sonship with the father, his coming from the father, all will be proved true. And Paul tells us how that would come to pass as he opens up the book of Romans. He says these words, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which whom he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus was declared, proven to be the Son of God in power as God raised Him from the dead for all to see. He will be vindicated and His enemies will be defeated. Notice the the confidence that the servant has in the Father. He asks the question, who will contend with me? Who is my adversary? Who will declare me guilty? Who will put me to shame? All of my enemies will wear out like a garment. All of his enemies will be defeated because the Lord God is his help. El Shaddai, God Almighty, the God of the armies of heaven, will prevail against all of his foes. And the Lamb will receive the full reward of his suffering. Jesus is the faithful Son, the righteous sufferer who obediently faces the enemies of God, trusting that they will be defeated and he will be vindicated. In church, 2,000 years later, you and I are called to face the enemies of God in the strength of God. Let me read to you Paul's words to Timothy in his last letter that, that he wrote, Second Timothy. He says, Indeed, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus 
will be persecuted. Did you hear what he said? Indeed, all will be persecuted. That is all that desire to live a godly life. Now, a Christian might live a compromised life. A Christian might live a worldly life and not be persecuted. But all that seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, Paul says, will be persecuted. You and I live in a world today that is becoming more and more hostile, annoyed, impatient with Christianity. We are, we are leaving, departing a time when it was culturally and socially acceptable, sometimes even beneficial to be a Christian. We are leaving a time where the accepted surface morality of our country was mostly aligned with God's word. Right? There was a, a Judeo-Christian worldview that sort of permeated our culture. Uh, one man and one woman in marriage was considered to be the norm. Sort of shocking to think that, that Barack Obama ran in his first term on that platform of one man, one woman in marriage. You see how quickly we've departed from that. Um, the nuclear family was seen as the fabric of society, central to a healthy society. Now we see a bit of a shift, do we not? We see a cultural departure. The law of God is left behind. This semblance of cultural Christianity is no longer embraced. And now the world is hostile to the faith. And it seems that things are just slowly but surely uh, increasing. Right? The world is raging to make it worse. You may have seen the news this week, but uh, our beloved Disney, for those of you that love Disney, has openly acknowledged that they are at war against your values and against your children. That they are openly seeking to normalize the sexual revolution in all of their media. They are, are happy to say this now publicly, that they want to include all of the sexual perversions that this world celebrates in those cartoons for our children. Because if they see that in the cartoon... Then they look at you, dad and mom, as the weird bigot that's just not with the times. We, we know that our schools are openly teaching a worldview that is, that is, that is anti-Christ, that is opposed to Christ. Christians are being marginalized, squeezed out of society. What you believe is being deemed as hateful and harmful, literally harmful to people. Beloved, you must count the cost. We, we need to be counting the cost to serve Christ faithfully. Will you live for the glory of God or will you live for your own compromised comfort? Because the line in the sand is being clearer and more defined. As Paul says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I believe that the, the time for wishy-washy Worldly Christianity is over. More and more the line in the sand is drawn. And to faithfully name and serve Christ Jesus, it will cost us. And we will be called to bow as individuals and as a church to this sexual revolution. Either say that it is good or get left behind and be incriminated potentially for hate speech, as is already happening in Canada but remember what Jesus said, the servant said, the Lord God helps me. 
The Lord God helps me. And beloved, we need to rest in those words. Listen to Christ. This is nothing new. John 15. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Praise God, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they did not know him who sent me. (laughs) Beloved, we just have to square with this. They killed Jesus Christ. They killed Jesus, the most compassionate, loving, merciful man that has ever walked the earth. In all of his calls to repentance, in all of his rebukes of the Pharisees, in all of his directing and and, and administering to prostitutes and, and tax collectors, he never sinned when he rebuked them. He never sinned with his attitude, with his motive, with his demeanor. Never once. And they killed him still. So what do you think about you, Christian, as you seek to humbly as you can exhort the lost to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ? If they killed our Lord and Master, why would we expect something all that different? Jesus promised that we would face hostility because he faced hostility. And we have largely, I believe, been spared in this nation because there's been a semblance of Christianity but that is changing. That is changing quickly. Um, but I love, beloved, that we have our own Isaiah chapter 50. So what, I, what we just read in Isaiah 50 is the servant saying, who's, but who's going to stand against me? Who's going to say, call me guilty? Who is my adversary? The Lord God helps me. And he is resting on the strength and the power of his father. And we have a scripture That is much the same, and it's not Isaiah 50, it's Romans chapter 8. As Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Lord God helps me. The Lord God will sustain and uphold his servant. And thus he will sustain and uphold his church because we are his body. 
But beloved, a line is drawn here in the sand. Lastly, as we see these last couple of verses. Now, the speaker all along has been the servant, has been Jesus. But now the speaker is Yahweh, is God. And listen to what he says in Isaiah 50, verse 10, as he draws a line in the sand and asks the question, basically, what will you do with my servant? Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. The living God speaks and he declares that there are two types of men, two paths and two ends. With all of our ways that we define one another and differentiate one another, there are two men in this life. One is on a broad road that leads to death, and one is on a narrow path that leads to life. One is in Adam, and one is in Christ. And he says the end for those that are in Adam is torment, is eternal pain. He says, firstly, that those that fear and obey the servant of Yahweh, those that call upon his name and bow down to him as Lord, those that confess to have no light and desire his light, those that desire to not walk in darkness but trust in the name of Yahweh and rely upon his God, will be preserved, will be protected. But those that seek to make their own light, those that equip themselves and define for themselves what that light ought to be, those content to walk in darkness and unwilling to fear the living God, those that set themselves up as kings, denying the Creator, those that live for themselves and indulge themselves as they please, he says their end will be torment. As John says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. I think the line here, beloved, has been clearly defined by the Lord. The time or the line was unclear in our context for a long time. Uh, because Christianity was sort of the dominant worldview, whether people had faith or not. And it was difficult at times to define the church from the world, as the world embraced on a surface level many of the things that the church embraced. But today things are becoming far more clear, and the line is much more definitive. And we must then, as the church, take a clear, strong stance for the truth a clear, strong stance for Christ. So let us hear His wise tongue with an open ear. The days of spending ourselves in trivial matters are past, beloved. Our Lord suffered that we might live, and He has called us to do the same. But God is our help. 
and he will vindicate his son, and thus he will vindicate his bride. And as we've seen and we'll see more next week, the servant's path to glory came through hardship, suffering, and death, and he has set that same course for his church. He never said it would be easy, but it is oh so worth it. Let's pray.